Hello, my name is President Shrimpo, and you are listening to In the West Wing, a political history podcast brought to you by WKNC 88.1. And in this week's episode, we will be exploring the rise of young Hickory, the protege of Andrew Jackson, old Hickory, uh, and the single largest expansion of American territory in its entire history in the Mexican-American War. So last episode, we kind of left off with a bit of a, a bit of a cliffhanger um, with the election of 1844 and, and sort of the, the, the unclear direction that the country was going in with, with the incredibly unpopular John Tyler seeking to uh, annex Texas, um, while it seemed that uh, neither major party was going to sort of embrace this, this push to expand America uh, into the Southwest. Uh, and Tyler was poised to run in a third party bid uh, uh, for the presidency. Um, but that did not actually have to come to be. Uh, so um, as John Tyler pursued the annexation of Texas, uh, the Democratic Party experienced this this sort of tremendous internal rift within the party um, uh, because uh, the former president, Martin Van Buren, uh, was expected to be renominated for a second non-consecutive term uh, in 1844. Uh, but the problem was that he was opposed to the annexation of Texas. Uh, it was because he he personally believed um, that that by annexing Texas, uh, the issue of slavery uh, would be sort of brought to the forefront of politics. Uh, and the divisions between northern and southern interests uh, would come to clash once again. Um, and, and that that by annexing Texas, it would it would only make the issue of slavery worse. Um, and that position fundamentally was at odds with the interests of Southern Democrats. Uh, and so, um, because Southern Democrats sort of perceived a, a weakness in, in the presumptive nominee, Martin Van Buren, uh, on the, sort of the last minute at the, at the 1844 Democratic National Convention, uh, Southern delegates moved to change the rules last minute uh, and changing it so that, that uh, in order to win the presidential nomination, um, uh, a candidate had to secure two-thirds of the convention's delegate votes. Uh, so while Martin Van Buren controlled a, a strong majority of delegates, um, he did not control the necessary two-thirds of delegates. Uh, and as a result, uh, the balloting at the convention would go on for many rounds uh, with, with the sort of various factions split between the candidates. Martin Van Buren, a, a candidate who was opposed to the expansion of slavery, uh, and then a number of, of, of pro-slavery candidates, including um, uh, Richard Mentor Johnson, the former vice president, uh, James Buchanan, uh, and Lewis Cass, senator from Michigan. Um, each of these candidates were, were perceived to be stronger on, on in supporting slavery than Van Buren, um, but none of them were able to consolidate the sort of multifactional support that was necessary to, to secure that two-thirds that was so important. 
and so uh, after successive ballots, you know, there was there was no clear breakthrough um, with with which candidate would be nominated. Uh, and very suddenly, seemingly out of the blue, uh, on the eighth ballot, a certain James Knox Polk, um, the former governor of Tennessee, and at one time uh, the briefly Speaker of the House, uh, garnered 44 votes. 44 votes certainly was nowhere near the necessary two-thirds majority, uh, but it kind of suddenly thrust him into the spotlight as this very sudden candidate that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, Polk really had not been interested in seeking the presidential nomination. Um, at most, he was really kind of expecting to maybe be the vice presidential candidate uh, for who, whichever nominee. And he actually came in um, uh, supporting uh, Van Buren's nomination. Um, but suddenly there, there was this this candidate that was able to kind of bring together the sort of Van Buren wing and the sort of pro-slavery wing. Uh, and on the next ballot, he would uh, quickly gain steam. Um, and on the ninth and final ballot... Uh, James K. Polk would be nominated for the presidency. Um, and this sort of is is the first of many dark horse candidates in, in American uh, uh, presidential politics. Um, and it's certainly not the last, but but um, Polk Polk was sort of perceived as the the uh, political successor in many ways um, to Andrew Jackson in that he um, sort of was was the protege. Of, of Jackson before uh, Jackson was was elected president, um, uh, so much so that that um, you know Andrew Jackson's nickname uh, was Old Hickory, and so of course uh, James K. Polk was then called Young Hickory uh, because of his his close relation with Jackson, uh, and in fact actually um, this this nomination struggle. Um, uh, it, it's sort of one of the arguments for why uh, Polk was able to um, win over so many delegates so quickly is that he he had this close relation uh, and that that uh, Jackson sort of um, behind the scenes pushed for for uh, Polk's nomination over Van Buren. And, and a big factor in, in, in Polk's successful campaign uh, was that that Polk was was unyielding in his position that both Texas and the Oregon Territory were by, by sort of this divine right American land and that the United States had to pursue their immediate annexation. But but instead of of the the sort of um, north-south divide uh, that that annexation sort of inflamed generally, uh, Polk sort of fused the two together and, and was sort of able to satisfy the demands uh, of Southerners who who hoped to expand the institution of slavery uh, while also sort of bouncing out with with the expansion. Of Northern Territory, and sort of the assumption then that there would sort of be this counterbalance uh, with Oregon in the creation of Northern free states alongside the slave state of Texas, uh, and so through this, this Polk was able to sort of marry together these these two sort of generally opposing factions and sort of unite them in, in the unifying goal of of immediate American expansion. Uh, on the other hand, the Whig Party nominated a certain Henry Clay. This was his third time running for the presidency. Uh, and and Clay was staunchly opposed to the annexation of Texas uh, because much like Van Buren, he believed that, that doing so would inflame the divisions between North and South in the country. 
Um, and actually, most Southern Whigs, unlike in the Democratic Party, uh, sort of agreed with Clay and believed that that um, the expansion of slavery uh, would only sort of inflame the issue even more. Uh, and so through this, Clay was able to rally support both among Northern and Southern delegates in a way that, that Van Buren was unable to do so. Uh, because up to this point, the, the Whig Party was still not beholden to sort of the most extreme interests of, of, of slaveholders in, in the way that the Democratic Party was quickly becoming. And so essentially, uh, Polk was able to turn this sort of quest for Western expansion into America's right to expand, sort of America's manifest destiny westward, which is a phrase that's thrown a lot around quite a lot, but sort of this, this idea that, that the growth of the American empire is, is this God-given right that, that white European Americans have a right to conquer Western territories. Uh, and, and through this, this narrative, uh, Polk is essentially able to shift the way voters looked at Western expansion. Instead of it being a, an issue of, of the expansion of slavery, the expansion of free states, this was simply American expansion. Uh, and this really gave Polk the upper hand in the election. Uh, and so, uh, come election day, 1844, uh, Polk was able to carry the Deep South, the Midwest, uh, portions of, of the sort of upper Atlantic, so, so Pennsylvania, New York, uh, a portion of New England, uh, while Clay won out in, in sort of in, in the New, New England area and then down into sort of traditional uh, southern Whig strongholds in the upper south, in, in Kentucky, Tennessee, and, and uh, New, uh, North Carolina. Uh, with Polk winning uh, in a margin of 170 electoral votes to Clay's 105. Uh, and and with the popular vote margin of only 1.4%, uh, uh, the popular vote mandate that that Polk garnered was was significantly narrower uh, than, than, than Jackson's, but it was enough. It was enough. And upon entering office, uh, Polk made it incredibly clear he only wanted to serve a single four-year term. Uh, he didn't want to be reelected in a second term in the way that uh, previous presidents had sought. Uh, and, and he laid out a very succinct and concrete list of what his objectives were as president. Uh, and they included uh, completing the annexation of Texas, reestablishing the independent treasury system rather than rechartering a national bank, which gets kind of into the weeds of economic policy. I'll explain it more uh, in detail later in the episode, but just for all intents and purposes, it is it is a system that is distinct from the bank system that the Whig Party sort of pushed for. Uh, additionally, he hoped to uh, reduce the tariff rate as uh, under previous Whig uh, uh, control, uh, um, the rate of tariffs had, had been uh, raised from, from their previous rates. Uh, additionally, uh, Polk aimed to acquire some or all of the Oregon Territory, which up to this point was a co-dominium uh, with the British. Uh, additionally, uh, he aimed to annex California and all of New Mexico from Mexico. Uh, and so the first big issue of Polk's presidency uh, was the annexation of Texas. Annexation had been very narrowly rejected uh, by the Senate, um, under the presidency of, of John Tyler. Um, 
But essentially, Polk was able to successfully negotiate with the new Congress in session. Uh, and so as a result, uh, the Senate would be able to pass uh, the annexation resolution very, very narrowly. Um, uh, and the legislature of the Republic of Texas would follow suit. Uh, and in December of 1845, Texas would become the 28th state. Now, for some background, um, the Republic of Texas uh, was essentially a breakaway uh, a rebel state um, from Mexico. Uh, it was uh, primarily populated by white, English-speaking American settlers uh, who generally were slaveholders. Um, the reason that they had rebelled uh, from the Mexican uh, Republic uh, was that, uh, well, Mexico didn't allow slavery, you see. Uh, and so, so Texans believed that it was their... God-given right to sort of own human beings as property. Uh, and uh, this paired with sort of religious divides, as, as most Americans, uh, most English-speaking Americans were, were Protestant uh, and most Mexicans were Catholic. You know, uh, this, this led to uh, heightened tensions until uh, uh, the uh, Texans rebelled uh, and declared independence in a war against Mexico. The thing is... Mexico never recognized Texas's independence. Uh, and so as a result, Mexico viewed the annexation of Texas by the United States as an entirely illegal move um, and the illegal annexation of Mexican territory, uh, which is certainly an issue uh, that will come up again. Uh, so uh, with the annexation of Texas, Polk then moved uh, to uh, handle the Oregon Territory. Um, essentially, without getting into a whole lot of detail, uh, the Oregon Territory is, is a stretch of land encompassing the modern states of Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, and British Columbia in what is now Canada. Um, and over many years, different countries claimed this stretch of land. This included uh, uh, the Spanish, um, the Americans, the British, the Russians. Um, but ultimately, the territory had come to sort of generally be under the joint occupation of American and British forces, was sort of agreed in which this stretch of land would be a quote-unquote co-dominium, which is sort of an area um, where two countries sort of jointly occupy. But American expansionists were not happy with this sort of status quo. And so uh, at the behest of... of uh, American war hawks that sort of hope to expand America uh, as far as possible. Um, the Polk administration pursued a settlement, um, uh, sort of establishing a concrete border um, with the Oregon Territory. Um, the most extreme of these demands uh, was for the United States to annex the entirety of the Oregon Territory, uh, with a very famous slogan being uh, 54, 40, or fight, um, which was in reference to the, the sort of uh, parallel that, that set the northmost boundary of the Oregon Territory way up in Canada. Um, Polk, however, was was sort of more moderate in his, in his demands. He was still willing to sort of provoke the British on the issue, but but he wasn't necessarily as dead set on getting the entirety of Oregon as, as some were. Polk essentially asserted uh, that the, the American-British border should fall at the 49th parallel, which which was the sort of parallel that set the uh, uh, Canadian-American border um, for a large stretch of land, but it, it was sort of 
essentially Polk just wanted it to then cut until it hit the Pacific Ocean. Um, but the British disagreed. The British hoped instead that the border would be set along the Columbia River, um, which would essentially have made much of the modern state of Washington fall under British territory. Um, but Polk refused. Polk insisted it had to be the 49th parallel or negotiations would break down. Uh, and break down they did. Um, and essentially Polk threatened to withdraw from the joint occupation agreement with Britain. Uh, and sort of this this game of, of territorial chicken um, eventually led to the British Prime Minister, Lord Aberdeen, blinking. Uh, uh, because Aberdeen was simply not willing to risk a war uh, with the Americans because he was afraid that it would severely impact British trade with the United States. Uh, and so as a result, um, the British were willing to come back to the negotiating table uh, and agreed to the border being set at the 49th parallel, which is what the border is today. Um, however, the one term was that the that, that 49th parallel border would not extend uh, and essentially cut Vancouver Island, and so that the Vancouver Island would then fall entirely under British occupation. Uh, and so, with that sort of being set, um, the British and Americans ratified uh, this this new border uh, in the summer of 1846, sort of freeing up the Polk administration uh, to sort of pursue other political aims that they were pursuing at the time. So, uh, with the settlement of, of the Oregon Territory dispute, uh, and the annexation of Texas, America wanted to continue expanding. Polk then sort of turned his eyes uh, to sort of the other territories that, that he had promised to incorporate into the United States, that being California and New Mexico. Now, the, the, the recognized border between Mexico uh, and Texas uh, was the Nueces River. Um, however, the vast majority of the international community recognized this. And even Mexico, uh, which did not recognize Texas as an independent country, they also recognized this border as sort of being the, the division where their occupation ended and Texas occupation began. Um, the United States even recognized it. However, Polk, Polk sided with the Texans because the Texans insisted that the border actually was 150 miles south of the Nueces River at the Rio Grande. So, uh, in the spring of 1846, President Polk ordered General Zachary Taylor uh, to march south down to the Rio Grande, uh, an area that was occupied and inhabited by Mexicans. Uh, and so suddenly, with American troops on territory officially recognized as being Mexican, uh, they were intentionally putting themselves in a hostile environment. Uh, and during this sort of this this maneuver in which American troops moved south, uh, a, a small patrol of 16 American soldiers uh, would be killed uh, with more wounded and captured by Me Mexican armed forces, uh, which would sort of be begin the commencement of, of uh, hostilities between the two countries. Um a certain Colonel Evan A. Hitchcock, uh, who was serving in this, this expedition uh, to the Rio Grande, uh, would write in his diary at the time, quote, I have said from the first that the United States are the aggressors. We have not one particle of right to be here. 
It looks as if the government sent a small force on purpose to bring on a war so as to have a pretext for taking California and as much of this country as it chooses. Which is all to say that that even Americans at the time recognized that, that this was an intentional provocation of the Mexicans. Uh, and, and rather than being this sort of um, actual uh, offense um, that, that, that the Mexicans were committing against the Americans, it was actually America that was the aggressor in this situation. Uh, but that simply was not the narrative that was pushed uh, by the administration. Um, Polk was impatient. He was excited. He wanted to start a war. Uh, and he called upon the Congress in an address uh, calling for war, uh, saying, quote, Mexico has passed the boundary of the United States, has invaded our territory, and shed American blood upon American soil. As war exists, notwithstanding all our efforts to avoid it, we are called upon by every consideration of duty and patriotism to vindicate with decision the honor, the rights, and the interests of our country. But this wasn't honorable. This was not uh, an instance of, of Mexicans crossing the American border and killing American soldiers in, in legally recognized American territory. This was disputed land that the Americans essentially just asserted was theirs and, and crossed the border to occupy. Really, this was a war of aggression on America's part. Uh, and in fact... This, all of this bluster about, about uh, American blood being spilled on American soil by Mexicans is, is sort of just a total distraction from the truth of the matter. And while, while this war was really essentially only being pushed by the Democratic Party, uh, the Whig Party, on principle, generally opposed this war. They, they, they did not believe that it was a, a legitimate cause for, for a declaration of war, uh, but in, in a bid to, to prevent themselves from making a politically unpopular decision against the war, uh, they recognized that openly blocking uh, a declaration of war would be politically damaging. Uh, and so war was declared against Mexico uh, in the House of Representatives, 174 to 14 against uh, and only 40 to 2 in the Senate on May 13th, 1864. And only the most openly abolitionist Whigs in the Congress uh, voted against the war. Uh, and even though among those who were openly and explicitly opposed to the war, uh, like Congressman John Quincy Adams uh, and Abraham Lincoln, they still voted to approve army appropriations for a war that they explicitly called unjust. This is all to say that, that Whig opposition was paper thin. And that's because opposition to the war was ideologically incoherent without a, the war being sort of directly tied to the issue of slavery. By making the war a simple matter of, of American nationhood and the, the right to expansion, uh, Polk was able to sort of effect, effectively deflect um, the sort of criticisms uh, of, of his detractors and sort of was able to then maneuver uh, politically 
in such a way that that this was a war that was universally popular, and even among its opponents, it, its opposition was sort of incoherent. And it was within this this opposition movement that we sort of see a, a, a split dynamic in which there are those who are opposed to the war on the grounds that that they believed that it would be a justification for the expansion of slavery. The expansion of slavery would become this sort of very destructive force. And I think that's exemplified uh, in a quote uh, by the transcendentalist writer Ralph Waldo Emerson, who, who wrote of the war, saying, quote, The United States will conquer Mexico, but it will be as a man who swallowed the arsenic which brings him down in turn. Mexico will poison us. And this is to say that, that Mexico would essentially be this, this poison pill in which suddenly with all of this new territory that would suddenly become American states, the issue of the expansion of slavery would come to the forefront and, and that it would be such a destructive force that it would destroy us from within. Uh, however, there were those who sort of viewed the expansion into Mexico in a different light. Uh, specifically, a, a, a Whig congressman by the name of Columbus Delano, um, opposed the expansion uh, into Mexico uh, on very ugly grounds. The following quote has a single word replaced as it is considered racially insensitive today. Um, however, uh, the original intent has not been altered in any way. Uh, and I think it still is representative of the beliefs held uh, by Congressman Delano um, that by annexing Mexico, uh, white Americans would intermingle with people who, quote, embrace all shades of color, a sad compound of Spanish, English, Indian, and black bloods, and resulting, it is said, in the production of a slothful, ignorant race of beings. This gross display of racism, sadly, was sort of the backbone of the bulk of, of opposition to American expansion into majority non-white territories uh, well past the Mexican-American War uh, into other sort of adventures of, of American imperialism. Um, but it just had to be said that, that um, even the opponents to the Mexican-American War were not morally spotless, you know, um, and, and that um, even if their opposition was a good thing, their, their reasons were not always that good. Uh, and so with the declaration of war, um, we now turn to sort of the, the progression of the Mexican-American War. Um, ultimately, Mexico's army w was poorly supplied uh, and political divisions back home between liberals and conservatives uh, within the military and, and, and political sphere uh, meant that their army just was not in tip-top shape. And so while the American military certainly had shortcomings, they were able to sort of very effectively combat against a much larger force. And essentially, America's campaigns into Mexico can sort of roughly be divided into three distinct armies. Under a certain Captain John C. Fremont, um, a, a small band of several hundred men uh, were uh, marched westward uh, and linked uh, with American-born rebels uh, in the territory of Northern California. Uh, and they were able to quickly occupy uh, the poorly defended territory. Um, 
uh, there was a short-lived California Republic, which was declared. Um, but the, really, this sort of ragtag group, um, they were really just aiming to become a new American state. Um, additionally, uh, a much larger force under the command of General Zachary Taylor uh, fraught fought through uh, the sort of rugged, mountainous terrain of northern Mexico uh, with several thousand men uh, sort of facing off against the bulk of the Mexican army, uh, sort of successfully combating a a much larger army uh, facing the Mexicans. And then further south, uh, we had General Winfield Scott. Um, Scott led the first large-scale naval invasion uh, by American forces in America's military history, uh, successfully invading in southern Mexico, capturing the city of Veracruz. Uh, Scott's forces would then advance further into central Mexico, uh, eventually besieging and capturing Mexico City itself. Uh, Throughout the duration of the the Mexican-American War, uh, several prominent Civil War generals uh, would sort of get their first experience with military uh, uh, sort of engagement during the Mexican-American War. Very notably, uh, we had Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant, and Stonewall Jackson serving uh, uh, under uh, their superiors in the Mexican-American War. Uh, And while the war was generally popular at home, soldiers faced terrible conditions with disease, mistreatment by their officers, uh, and this all led to large-scale desertions as the war dragged on, Um, which is to say that, that this was not entirely a super popular conflict, and, the, and there were certainly struggles that the, that the American military faced. Um, but ultimately, Mexico would surrender. With the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, signed February of 1848, um, America conquered roughly half of Mexico's territory and expanded the United States, capturing uh, what is now the modern states of Utah, Cal- Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, and California. This was the largest single expansion of American territory in U.S. history and and essentially set the modern border uh, between the United States uh, and uh, Mexico. It would be shifted slightly with the Gadsden Purchase several years later, but this was sort of the bulk of the uh, American-Mexican border. Uh, And in return for this, this massive seizure of land, uh, the Mexican government would pay be paid $15 million in return. Now, I did the math, and $15 million in 1848, that's a large sum of money. But it's less than half a billion dollars in today's money. I don't think that's a fair trade. But of course, territorial expansion was not Polk's only agenda in office. And there, there in fact, was... A, Equally, I think, important, uh, Polk's economic agenda, uh, which I haven't really touched on up to this point. Um, But sort of this was sort of something that was being worked on at the same time as the Mexican-American War. Uh, Specifically, we had tariff reduction and the establishment of an independent treasury. Uh, Now, under um, the Whigs, uh, they... The American government had pursued a higher tariff rate uh, than had existed under Jackson and Van Buren. Uh, And under Presidents Harrison and Tyler, uh, the tariff rate uh, was raised. Um, But Polk moved to lower the tariff rate because he he sort of 
was far more in favor of of sort of closer to something like free trade between the United States and the rest of the world. Uh, and in July of 1846, uh, the Senate essentially voted to to um, lower the tariff rate. Um, uh, uh, but the issue was the Senate was split exactly 50-50. Uh, and the tie would be broken by Vice President George Dallas. Um, and as a result of this lowered tariff rate, um, there was sort of this sudden spark of increased trade uh, between the United States and the United Kingdom, which arguably was a key factor in the softening of our country's relationship, um, which would eventually lead to sort of the end of hostilities between the United States and Great Britain, uh, and sort of what would eventually become sort of known as the special relationship. And it can be traced back all the way to this this lowered tariff rate. But I think I think much more importantly than than tariffs uh, was the independent treasury system. Uh, essentially, the largest economic debate between Democrats and Whigs during this period um, was whether or not there should be a national banking system. Um, under Jackson, the Democratic Party sort of singularly pursued the destruction of, of a banking system. Uh, and Polk, as the protege of Jackson, uh, too, was opposed to centralized banking and the return of, of the Bank of the United States. Instead, Polk supported a system known as the Independent Treasury. Now, the Independent Treasury did briefly exist under Martin Van Buren, but it was under a limited charter uh, and was sort of in a reaction uh, to the panic of 1837. I, I, I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail about how the independent treasury system works because frankly, I don't fully understand it. But to the best of my knowledge, essentially the independent treasury is a system in which the United States has a number of private vaults that it owns and in these vaults, America stores the money that it prints. Rather than having a bank that is sort of this, this third party that is open to corruption, the Democrats believe that, but that by having government-owned vaults, America could sort of keep track of its money in a, in, a, in a better way than just sort of letting states decide their monetary policy. Um, and so, really, this, this was very important. And the Treasury would be established by Congress uh, in the August of 1846. Uh, and as an institution, it would last until the Federal Reserve System was created in 1913, more than half a century later. And it really kind of put to rest the constant bickering between the two parties over monetary policy. And I think more importantly, it stripped the Whig Party of an important piece of their party agenda. Why should the Whig Party create a new Bank of the United States if the independent treasury system is working and keeping American finances stable? All of this is just to say that, that Polk was able to sort of very successfully complete every single one of his policy agendas. Additionally, with um, alongside Texas's admission as a slave state, um, uh, Polk would sort of keep... Uh, the balance between free and slave states uh, sort of in a state of balance. Uh, and so alongside the admission of Texas, Iowa was admitted as a free state in 1846. Uh, and then the state of Wisconsin was admitted 
uh, in early 1848, uh, meaning that slave and free states were in perfect balance, 15 states each. Uh, but suddenly, with the Mexican session uh, annexing and gobbling up a huge chunk of the Southwest, the entire balance of free and slave states was just up in the air. And we see this, this sort of importance of this uh, come to prominence with the election of 1848. Polk had kept to his promise to only serve a single term, uh, and so he did not pursue renomination. But his policy success, uh, this led to then uh, Democrats being widely expected to be the easy winners of, of this election. They were sort of expected to be a bit of a layup. Um, and so in desperation, the Whig Party turned to war hero General Zachary Taylor, whose, whose service was so important um, in defeating the Mexicans. Um, Taylor was by no means a committed Whig. Uh, he claimed to have never even voted in elections prior to 1848. Um, additionally, he was a Southern slaveholder. Um, so the idea was that he, he would be able to sort of appeal to the Southerners um, who sort of were, were becoming increasingly pro-democratic. Um, but he was not sort of seen as, as a ideological firebrand in favor of slavery, uh, which sort of helped his, his standing in the North as well. Um, and so with Taylor, with this sort of apolitical, just sort of strong man, this, this apolitical sort of kind of thought to be a bit dumb um, war hero, uh, the Whig Party just kind of gave up on pushing f really strongly for their agenda, at least with their presidential nominee. Uh, and so I think more importantly, we then look to the Democratic nominating process. In New York, uh, Democratic delegates were split uh, between two different factions, those who were dubbed barn burners and those who were dubbed hunkers. Uh, essentially, they were divided over the issue of slavery. Um, barn burners were opposed to the expansion of slavery. Hunkers were in favor of the expansion of slavery. Uh, and with no consensus with that at the National Convention on which delegation should be seated, uh, the barn burner faction staged a massive walkout um, led by a certain Martin Van Buren. And, and while uh, the... Um, Democratic nomination would fall to Michigan Senator Lewis Cass, who was softly in favor of slavery. Um, the Democratic Party was, was deeply wounded by this New York walkout. Uh, and under Martin Van Buren, uh, barn burner Democrats would merge uh, with supporters of the anti-slavery Liberty Party, along with Northern Whigs who, who were bitter over the nomination of Taylor, and they merged together to form the new Free Soil Party. Uh, free Soilers were not abolitionist. I, I need to make that very clear. A lot of people say that Martin Van Buren was an abolitionist. By no means was the Free Soil Party a, a, an abolitionist party in, in the modern sense of the word. Instead, they stood very simply to block the expansion of slavery into new states. They they Essentially, they just kind of wanted to contain the institution of slavery. They didn't want to wipe it out. They just wanted to prevent it from growing. And ultimately, the general election was very light on policy issues. America was riding on sort of a bit of a high from their victory in the Mexican-American War. Uh, 
And so it kind of devolved into sort of more of a, a conflict of personality with really only uh, Van Buren running a, a, a ideologically minded uh, campaign. Uh, and so as a result, uh, Taylor would be elected president alongside Millard Fillmore of New York as the vice president. Uh, the Whig Party was essentially only able to win with a war hero candidate that was very apolitical in his standings and with a divided democratic field. Uh, and so this sort of points to sort of the breakdown of, of Whig Party strength, even in this victory. They're, 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 it shows the sort of underlying cracks and faults within their party structure. Uh, and in the next episode, uh, we will explore the collapse of the Whig Party as a national agenda, the rise of slaveholding interests within the Democratic Party and the sort of beginning of their stranglehold on the entire Democratic Party, and the beginning of a total realignment of the American party system uh, with blood being spilled in Kansas. As always, I have been your host, President Trimpo, and you have been listening to In the West Wing, a political history podcast brought to you by WKNC 88.1. Special thanks to those who helped give history a voice in this week's episode of In the West Wing, with Elijah Ensley as Colonel Ethan A. Hitchcock, Jamie Lynn Gilbert as James K. Polk, Changa Balaj as Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Sanath Shakran as Columbus Delano. The intro music used on In the West Wing is Star Spangled Banner by the United States Marine Band, and our outro song is Libertad by Iriarte and Pessoa.